My iMac fan noise problem is worsening. Oh, so I guess you're buying a new Mac then, probably a Mac Mini. No, he just needs to take it off of his desk, put it into a case, and carry it around on the street for a while, and then unpack it. That's what fixed it last time, right? <laughs> Actually, yeah. I, yeah, the, the transportation to the beach did, I guess, dislodge enough dust. I mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting near the end of my rope here. Like, I, it, it's, it's pretty bad. Like, it's, it's now audible most of the day, uh, even when it's ostensibly you know, idle, like when there's nothing in activity monitor or iStat menus showing that's actually using the CPUs, it's now idling at like 72 degrees Celsius and like 13 to 1400 RPM fan speed, which is not normal. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this isn't even just Catalina being Catalina because it, it persists through reboots too. So I'm just, um, this is the worst time in possibly a decade to need a, new high performance desktop mac yeah i did actually like i because i actually looked the trade-in value for my imac pro is almost three thousand dollars wow that's not bad actually i know i was i was like that's actually like i could just trade it in and just buy like you know the highest spec mac mini with the new chip which is like seventeen hundred dollars but i would only then have two terabytes instead of four and I would have only 16 gigs of RAM instead of 64. And I'm a little hesitant to go that route. And I'd have to, you know, go get my stupid LG 5K and bring it to the beach. And I'm, no way in hell I'm ordering a second one. But, you know, just <laughs> I'll have to move that one here. <laughs> um, so I, it's, it would be kind of a, an ordeal. And then, like, what I really want, ideally, is a new iMac. Like, I love the iMac. Although, and well... Do I love the iMac? I mean, I've had now uh, two, I guess, right? Did I only have one 5K before the Pro? No, I thought you had two. You had the one with image retention, and I don't remember if you ever got that fixed. I did eventually get it fixed. That one came out in, what was it, 2014, the first 5K came out? Yeah, right. Something like that? Yeah. The iMac Pro came out in the end of 2017, and I had it for three years. So yeah, so I'm pretty sure I just went straight from that iMac 5K, the first-gen iMac 5K, to the iMac Pro. And in both cases, I loved them for a while, but they didn't age incredibly gracefully because of the all-in-oneness. Like, you know, the, the first one, I had, I had a screen problem, and I, I, you know, it took a while for me to be able to go get a fix because I don't want to send my whole iMac in for repair for, you know, just the screen. Like, the computer part was fine. If it was a Mac Pro, I could just unplug the monitor. You know, like, the all-in-oneness there kind of limited its lifespan. And in this case, the all-in-oneness is limiting its lifespan as well. So maybe I should learn from this. I probably won't. Uh, <laughs> what, what I ultimately, like, if there was an M1-based iMac, I would have probably already ordered it. As we as we record, and I've mentioned this before, I, I try to work on the show notes and get a pretty solid rough draft ready. And I had already written... You heard it here first. Marco is really starting to justify a new Mac. I think I will now change that to you heard it here first. Marco is really starting to justify a new Mac Pro. I will not buy a Mac Pro. I would buy the 6K HDR <laughs> display <laughs> before I would buy the, the Mac Pro, which is funny because if I did that, what I would plug in the 6K HDR display with its fan to would be a MacBook Air that I... <laughs> that i have but has no fan oh my, my monitor would have a fan and my computer wouldn't <laughs> oh, you can't hear the monitor fans don't worry mm. I'm, I'm telling you i'm sitting in front of it right now i was looking up, up i fix it today it's like how do you open an imac pro if like if i wanted to get in there and actually try to remove like you know major dust buildup 
how do I get in there and how risky is it? And the the answer is like, it's a pain in the butt and moderately. And so I don't I don't know if I want to attempt that, especially in a dusty, salty air environment that's highly corrosive uh, in a house that I have very few tools and no abilities to open IMAX, you know, effectively and cleanly. It's probably a bad idea. So I'm probably not going to want att- to attempt that myself. So I don't know. The the end of the world notwithstanding, <laughs> would it be cheaper to fly a Stephen Hackett to you to perform this operation and then fly him home? <laughs> I'm just, let's think a little outside the box. <laughs> well, it, it would probably be more practical to just, you know, go take my iMac, put it in the carrying case, walk it to the ferry, get on the boat, go across the bay, go to the nearest Apple store, drop it off. Or I guess I could do mail-in, but that's that's a whole other ordeal. And then, yeah, and have Apple do it. I'd be without it for a while. Then I'd have to take another set of, you know, ferry and car trips and walking trips and, you know, to go pick it up in a few days whenever it was done. So it, it would be an ordeal. <laughs> I'd rather not do it. I mean, really, the most responsible thing to do here would just be to just deal with my stupid fan noise uh, for the next whatever it'll be seven months maybe before there's going to be an iMac pro or an iMac with the M series chips in them. But man, this, this is annoying. I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm quite sure that the moment something that even vaguely smells like an iMac with Apple Silicon in it is released. I am sure that you will be the very first person in line to replace your, your poor struggling iMac pro. I I mean, I really am. I, I have been very tempted to just switch to my air full time somehow, even though it only has one terabyte, and you know I I could use externals. I guess I I could figure I could make that work with, with some hacks, and then just somehow solve the monitor situation, and which would probably be on my next trip picking up my my five k and bringing it here. So maybe that's what I'll do. But I don't know. I don't love that option. What do you hate more? Do you hate fan noise more, or do you hate that LG five k? That's a good question. <laughs> I I really don't love the idea of buying the 6K monitor to have an unknown future computer. Like, what am I going to plug into that in a year? What if the most compelling computer for me in the next year ends up being an iMac again? Then I bought this giant monitor with all this money for, you know, only six months of use. And then, like, that's, that's a pretty big loss and a pretty big waste, I think. Like, I, I would have trouble swallowing that. Whereas if I just either had a Mac mini that I could plug in or something like that, or plugged in my MacBook air to the LG five K. I don't like swallowing something about all of these plans, (laughs) but I think using all of the hardware I already have, that is like the LG five K is just sitting in my house, like in, in studio B doing nothing. I could just use that. And that's, that's probably what I should do. Even though like I'll be grumbling the whole time looking at that stupid monitor and it's, terrible backlight leakage and its giant ugly frame and the big ugly foot and all that stuff. So, John, would you mind going to apple.com slash shop slash trade hyphen in? I'm curious if you enter in, John, the serial number of your XDR, I doubt it will like magically make it through. And please do not, you know, share that obviously verbally. But if you just quietly enter in your serial number, I wonder what it would say. Actually, it does have an option for it under other devices. It says, what kind of device do you want to, you, you, you say displays, and it says recycle. Right, exactly. That's recycling <laughs> only, which is not what you want. You can recycle your display, John. Which model do you, I entered my serial number, and it says, which model do you have? And now I have to pick other? Yeah, I guess. 
Based on what you've told us today, your Mac is ready to recycle. Well, I, <laughs> oh, entered, I, I entered a display serial number, so I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, that's funny. All right. Well, it was worth a shot. All right. Shall we start with some follow-up? We have, oh, do we have follow-up today? It'll be a miracle if we get out of follow-up today. So let's start. Ryan Fegley writes, I had some duplicate, the same duplicate context issue as Marco this week, caused by an upgrade to Big Sur, I believe. Uh, deduping the contacts or deduping in context didn't work. So I restored from a pre upgrade iCloud backup on the iCloud website in a browser. I had no idea this was possible. Uh, Ryan writes, it worked like a charm. It's good to know it's an option. So you log into iCloud.com, you click on your name in the upper right, and then go to account settings. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes. And then it says restore blank on the bottom left, restore files, restore contacts, restore calendars, restore bookmarks. And apparently that's a way you can restore stuff, which is news to me. I had no idea. Yep, I, I filled in the details in this because I'm like, I remember being on iCloud.com, being able to restore stuff, but it was it was a little bit of a trick to find. Like I would, you wouldn't think to go to account settings and then then these these links appear totally on the opposite side of the page, but they do. So you can restore, I think you can restore individual files. So, you, you know, like it, it's nice that this stuff is there. Um, I don't understand why it's not on the Mac, but whatever. Uh, second bit of follow-up related to this is that when I was doing this to confirm it, I opened up contacts and guess what? I had duplicates of all my contacts too. And I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> I didn't even upgrade. I didn't even upgrade to Big Sur. Why the hell do I have duplicates? And I said, oh yeah, I didn't upgrade to Big Sur, but I just got an M1 Mac that runs Big Sur and I made my account on it and I mm-hmm. logged in and connected it to my iCloud. So something having to do with Big Sur is really... Really uh, excited about making duplicate contacts. I just used the dedupe feature in contacts, and it fixed my problem. I have no idea why I had duplicates, but that's what I had. Cool. Lucky us. I don't seem to have that problem. Yeah, lucky you guys. Well, do, have you, uh, Casey, have you logged into a Big Sur, an official release Big Sur machine with your actual Apple ID yet? Yeah, because my MacBook Pro has been on Big Sur for like a week, maybe two. Yeah. All right. Well, you like that, but me and Marco uh, drew the duplicate straw. So sorry. All right, so accelerated TensorFlow for macOS probably just uses the GPU. If I recall correctly, we were surmising that maybe it uses the neural engine, uh, and apparently that's not the case. Uh, there's a link to machinelearning.apple.com where they write, until now, TensorFlow has only used, utilized the CPU for training on the Mac. The new TensorFlow underscore macOS fork of TensorFlow 2.4 leverages ML compute to enable machine learning libraries to take full advantage of not only the CPU, but also the GPU in both M1 and Intel powered Macs for dramatically faster training performance. Very cool. Yeah. And some people were saying on Twitter, like, oh, it's because the neural engine can't be used for training. But his Nash on Twitter says neural engine can be used for training as well, but it's limited in the type of operations. So ML compute framework uses the uh, CPU and GPU because it's more generic. So... Yeah, TensorFlow did get a lot faster, and it is seven times faster on the M1 Mac, but it's not because of the neural engine. Indeed. Max Lean writes that uh, Marco said on... Oh, this is actually... This is a very good well, actually. This is the kind of well, actually, I can get behind. Uh, Marco said in the podcast that Apple has never made memory controllers with support for ECC RAM. Admittedly, it has been a while, but the PowerMac G5 and XServe G5 both supported ECC RAM, and the memory controller was made by Apple. Yeah, I should have thought of the PowerMac. When he said that, I was trying to pull something out of my head of whether they did it, and I remember the PowerMac G5 had ECC RAM, but I couldn't remember if Apple made the controller if it was some Motorola or IBM thing, but... We'll trust Max. He seems like he knows. 
All right, moving on. Jonathan Dietz writes, after listening to the scaling the Mac, uh, the M1 architecture to hire a machine section from episode 406, I figured I'd send along some cheat sheets of relevant info. Die size is generally constrained by the reticle limit, which is due to current lithography steppers having a maximum field size of 26 millimeters by 33 millimeters or 858 square millimeters. It's important to keep in mind just how many different chips Apple is integrating into each M-series system on a chip. The CPU, the GPU, the PCH, the T2. What's PCH? Platform Controller Hub, I think. It's like the it's like what used to be called the South Bridge, I think. Ah, right. Okay, thank you. Uh, P, uh, T2 functions, including storage controller and the Thunderbolt slash USB 4 controllers. It's also worth noting that decent SSD controllers like the one in the T2 have their own memory interface for DRAM cache. With the M1, the storage controller is connected directly to the system fabric and shares the unified memory pool, meaning performance is no longer limited by PCIe times 4 connection to the host processor or cache size. Eliminating the need for both integrated and discrete GPUs, as well as consolidating the two or three different memory subsystems, has a lot of upside for Apple. There's a uh, spreadsheet that we'll link in the show notes. There's a fancy chart that, if we remember, Marco will make the show art for this chapter. Uh, with regard to RAM, good old DDR4 DIMMs are the only way to scale capacity. Apple will likely go with four HBM2E stacks. What in the world does that mean? That's uh, see, a couple of people talk, were talking about HBM. Well, we'll talk more about that in the next bit here, but this is high bandwidth memory. It's not a great ah, okay. acronym because, like, what does that even mean? What does high mean? What happens when the next memory interface comes out and it has higher bandwidth than the than supposed HBME or whatever? Then you call it ultra high bandwidth, 4K. Yeah, yeah, super speed. Yeah, we know. We know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Apple will likely go with four HBM2E stacks for up to 64 gigs of crazy fast on-package memory with the M1X, but would need to tack on an additional eight-channel DDR4 uh, interface for any hope of parity with the Intel Xeon or AMD EPYC. Is that supposed to be Epic platforms? That's how I pronounce it when I read okay. it. <laughs> it's also worth noting that regardless of memory type, the highest density DRAM dies currently available are only 16 gigabit or 2 gigabytes. Increasing capacity means adding and paying for more dies. There's no way around that. So I did actually make a, the image that's in the in our show notes here is perfectly square for the purposes of show art. So Marco, please make <laughs> this graph. Because I spent so long making this stupid graph because I do not know how to use spreadsheets to graph things and they make me so angry. <laughs> uh, this one, I, I, I always go, go to numbers because I see like Jason Stone makes his graphs and numbers. I'm like, oh, Apple's nice. Everything's going to look nice. I'll use numbers to make it, but I cannot figure out how to do anything in numbers. <laughs> and so then I go to Excel grudgingly. And I also don't know how to use Excel at all, but somehow I'm able to do it in Excel. So I, I, I do what I need to do in Excel and then I import, I save the Excel spreadsheet and then I import the Excel spreadsheet into numbers. And then the graph appears in numbers. I'm like, oh, I, and I still can't even reverse engineer it. <laughs> I so don't know how to graph things. And and I would say spreadsheets are also terrible at graphing things, especially time series data, where spreadsheets have no idea what time is. Like, they just think like, oh, this is the first column, this is the second column, the third column. Like, no, but they're time values. They're separated by time. Can you graph them over time? And it's like, nope. You know, I know you probably can. Excel geniuses will tell you how. But anyway, I don't like them. Um, so this graph, what this graph shows is related to something we, we discussed. Um, and Jonathan sent us this giant spreadsheet filled with all sorts of information um, about various different silicon things, CPUs, GPUs, so on and so forth. We will put a link to, I, I put the spreadsheet, I copied most of the spreadsheet and cleaned it up a little bit and put it into Google Sheets. And we will put a link to that in the show notes. It's publicly viewable, so you can look at it. It's way more data than we're going to go into here. But the one graph I wanted to pull out was related to our previous discussion is how much bigger can Apple make the system on a chips? And we were trying to look up die sizes and we didn't know them off the top of our head. And, you know, and so this is why he was, 
replying with all his info. So here, this graph shows, and someone should paste this into the, the chat room for the poor chat people. It shows the die sizes of lots of different uh, CPUs and GPUs and stuff. Way at the left end of the, the spectrum here is the A14 and A13, and the A14 is actually smaller than the A13 through the magic of process shrink, even though it's got more stuff in it. All right, that's, and the A14 is 88 millimeters squared, right? Way on the right side is like this weird uh, data center machine learning GPU that's just massive, uh, and it's 826 uh, millimeters squared. Uh, but right next to that, the second to, to biggest bar in the thing at 700, that's the 28-core Xeon in the Mac Pro. So the A14 is 88 millimeters square, and the 28-core uh, Xeon is 700. So there's a lot of room for these chips to get bigger. By the M1 is around 120. This is an estimate. Um, so from 120 to 700, that's the, currently the range from Apple's smallest Mac chip to its biggest one. Or Actually, there may be an Intel one that's smaller, but I doubt it, right? So... Can how much bigger can the M1 get? Uh, you know, especially regards to like how much cooling capacity can it absorb? Well, if you've got a 28 core, uh, you know, Xeon in your Mac Pro and it's able to cool it with that fan, boy, you can you can make the M1 a lot bigger and a lot hotter before you run into any cooling limits. There, it is darn near impossible to get an image out of Google Docs. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, copy the link to the copy the link to the what do you call it? Um, because that has the. Uh, image in it. Just screenshot it and then paste it into a spreadsheet and then save that into a Word document. Uh, yeah, I put the Google Docs thing in. The Google Docs has it has the Google Docs version of the chart, which I also probably wouldn't know how to do, but because I imported it again, this <laughs> it figured I just, I don't like graphing. I, actually, I do like graphing. I just don't like these programs. The way they think about graphing is not the way I think about it, so we clash. Andrew Bunner writes, I work in computer in the computer vision space, and one thing that we think about is how we can make giant convnet training jobs faster. What on earth is convnet? Con- I'm, I'm assuming that stands for convolution, but who knows? Okay, good talk. Here is Sarah Brass, and they claim to have made a single-die ML accelerator that is about 8.5 inches square. I have no idea what the yields are or if it is even good, but the chips is an example of how big the, these things can be. It's 56 times the size of the largest GPU. And so the largest GPU is uh, 815 square millimeters with 2.1 billion transistors. 21.1 so, billion. Th- thank you. Sorry about that. 21.1 billion. That's, that's totally what I said. Uh, Sarah Press <laughs> is 46,225 square millimeters with 1.2 trillion transistors and 400,000 cores. My word. You have to look at it. It, it. It's it's basically like, you know, the silicon wafers you see where it's like a big circular thing and then on it they, they print a bunch of different chips. This is like just use the whole wafer for one, <laughs> quote unquote, one chip. And I mean, obviously it's not one chip. Obviously it is many of the same things over and over and over again, but it's hilarious. Can you imagine if this was your target, like, and every single one of them had to work, the yields must not be good. But if you want to know how big can you make a silicon thing, you can make it as big as the whole wafer if... I guess money is no object, and if, obviously if the cores are simple enough or whatever, but yeah, 46,000 millimeters square. So again, uh, M1 is 120, Big Xeon is 700, this one is 46,000. That is utterly bananas. All right, this is a wall of text, John. Do you really want me to read all this? I mean, I, I can get, take, take a shot at it by paraphrasing, because I think okay. I understand the, the major points. This is a lot of text. This is from Wade Tregasis, and he's got a lot of info about uh, memory bus. Uh, and we've talked about memory in the M1 and the unified memory architecture and bandwidth and so on and so forth. So his first bit is, 
Um, he says, I've seen it repeatedly stated the M1 has 60 gigabits per second of memory bandwidth and that it's three times that of any MacBook Pro. The M1 does, in fact, have 60 gigabits of memory bandwidth, but the 16-inch MacBook Pro has 40 gigabits of, math, uh, of, of bandwidth. So it's about 1.5x, not 3x. And he gives, he gives all the math on this thing, and it looks like it makes sense to me. So I think people doing a 3x were maybe just not keeping in mind that a double data rate memory sends on the leading and trailing edge, so you have to double it, right? And so that's why it's it's not uh, 6x. So it you know it's not to diminish the M1. Again, they just in the cheapest MacBook Air you can buy, it has 60 gigabytes per second memory bandwidth, which is faster than the 40 in the most expensive Intel MacBook you can buy, right? Says what's novel here is the frequency being on package and not having all the single interchange latency. Um, Apple's been able to increase the DRM bus frequency by 220% versus 16 inch MacBook Pro. While this increased bandwidth is mostly is the most touted consequence of this, it also reduces memory latency, and that's more likely the main contributor to performance, right? So, talking about more of the benefits of the of the RAM being on package, you can clock it faster, it's closer, cl- quote unquote, closer by, and you have less latency, and so on and so forth. So, now some more speculation about what do you do in the Mac Pro and the iMac Pro when you need more memory. Um, so first, it, on the topic of like, wow, the unpackaged memory has such amazing bandwidth or whatever, high-end CPUs today typically have at least eight channels of DDR4 authoring 400 gigabytes per second of bandwidth. So the big Mac Pro and other big computers have way more memory bandwidth than the unpackaged memory. Unpackaged doesn't make it magical. Like if you throw money and buses at it, and huge banks of RAM, you can get large amounts of aggregate bandwidth from doing that, right? And soon DDR5 will be out, which will basically double the bandwidth again. I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the Wikipedia page for uh, memory interface uh, bandwidth numbers. Um, Wade says, I doubt Apple can push the frequency much higher. They're likely limited by signal integrity, if not thermals. So to get into the ballpark, they'll need to increase the number of channels and therefore chips about eightfold. But by using regular DDR instead of LPDDR, which is what they use in the on-package RAM, that amounts to just eight channels and chips, very possible from all angles. So what he's saying is basically, if you put, right now we have those two little on-package chips in the M1, say you make room for eight of them, say you put like, I don't know, put them all around the edges of or whatever, that's not a ridiculous... Or stack them or something. Yeah, they're, and they're, it's talked about 3D stacking in a little bit, but yeah, it's not, it's not ridiculous that they could do that. That still leaves the capacity angle. It's likely impractical to fit terabytes of RAM onto the onto the CPU package for the foreseeable future, but I think there's a presumption being made that Apple cares about large memory systems. This is the point that Marco brought up in a couple of past shows. Uh, Apple trumpeted the 1.5 terabyte support of the current Mac Pro because they could. It came for free from Intel. Well, not free, but you know, you know what he means. Uh, how much do you think that capability actually means to their customers? So Wade says is, what I actually suspect is that they'll simply go with on-package only, placing the capacity limit on something on the order of 128 gigabytes. And I think the performance will be astounding thanks to the same kind of three times higher clock frequencies, et cetera, not to mention all their performance advances from the rest of the system. Um, So that's, like, this is what we're talking about. Like, is it feasible? How much could you get on package if money is almost no object? 128 gigabytes, probably feasible, but it would be really fast, 128 gigabytes. And here is the, here's, Wade is obviously well-steeped in the ways of Apple. Here is his justification. I believe that Apple believes that they can get away with this by focusing on the end results. Utter domination over Intel in any and every performance <laughs> ben- benchmark, which they can trivially achieve from anywhere they are. To, I mean, they're already achieving with the freaking MacBook Air, so no problem there. Um, if pushed, they'll use their typical line of, we just couldn't find a way to achieve the performance we wanted by doing it the old-fashioned way. I find this plausible. 
Um, and in keeping with Apple's attitudes, I don't think it's a slam dunk just because as the Mac Pro's whole role is to have tremendous capacity and limiting that just cuts you out of the, as Marco said in the last show, just totally cuts you out of certain markets where people just need more RAM. But those rumors of a half-size Mac Pro or like an iMac Pro that maxes out at 128 gigs of RAM that has these characteristics, uh, that would be fantastic. And that is, uh, you know, an extremely Apple-like and a very likely machine uh, that they could make. Um, so that, that was the end of Wade's comment. I have a few of my own to add for, because we got so much feedback about here's how I think we can make bigger and better and faster Macs, uh, based on ARM chips. Lots and lots of people. This is the, the most popular thing that people suggested is how about you just put two M1 chips in there? Remember when Macs used to have multiple <laughs> CPUs? <laughs> I mean, hey, my Power Mac G5 had two of them. My Mac Pro had two of them. Uh, why don't you just stick a second one in there? Um, I think this is unlikely for a couple of reasons i mean it, it is it is related to my next line item which says low effort mac pro uh some people think this is low effort well hey, don't worry about all this of making the m1 bigger just make like a little bit bigger m1 like an m1x and use that in like your imac or whatever and then on the mac pro just put two of them or four of them in or something uh symmetric multiprocessing where you have multiple cpus that each have their own caches but share a central pool of ram like the, the setup that, that had been used on past macs it's kind of a pain because as you can imagine, we talked about the cache hierarchy last time, all these CPUs have to sort of keep on the same page, so to speak, pun pun, about what the deal is with memory. So if they pull something from memory and it's in there like L3 or L2 or L1 cache or whatever, and someone else wants that piece of memory, it's like they, the, the CPUs need to communicate with each other and say, oh, you know, I'm in the middle of changing that, or you don't know that I changed that because it hasn't been written back yet, but I have a change version of that in my cache. Or if someone changes a piece of memory, they have to tell all the other CPUs, hey, if you have this in your cache, invalidate it because I just changed it. And that, it, you know, that process, there's overhead to that process. It's not particularly efficient. It's the same overhead when you have multiple cores and you keep jamming into the same chip, not the same overhead, but it's a similar type of thing. But the more integrated the thing is, the easier it is for you to make a very efficient way to do that. That's why within a single CPU, it is easier to deal with cache invalidation than it is with two entirely different chips on a, on separate parts of the board that have to do that same task, but they're farther apart, have more latency, and they can't optimize the way they do this, especially if it's like, uh, you know, two-way or four-way. Now you have to handle even more cases. It's kind of a pain. So I don't think Apple will do that because I think the performance is worse. And I think the complexity is pretty annoying. It's not actually that low effort. And speaking of low effort, I was thinking of this last show. This is one of the first notes I put in for next week's show. What does a low effort Mac Pro look like? I don't mean this to be insulting, but like, what if you needed to make a Mac Pro to serve the same needs as the current Mac Pro, but you just didn't want to spend some ridiculous amount of money to do the cool things that Wade was saying, where you make this giant chip that has, you know, 128 gigs of unpackaged RAM and this amazing performance, and it's just this amazing bespoke beast that just has inside of it little bits from like the a14 but in general is this huge piece what if you didn't want to do that because it's just too much money how do you make a mac pro with sort of the parts on hand let's assume you have something that's like an m1x that is beefy enough to be in an imac or whatever um or or you you know and you're willing to do that level of work the low effort mac pro is uh rip out the unpackaged ram and use an amd gpu and ship it because you've got the M1 quote-unquote system on a chip, the RAM is is in a bunch of DDR DIMMs, and the GPU is from 
AMD, your trusted partner for GPUs, and you write drivers to the AMD GPU, and you use the RAM and those giant banks that have tremendous bandwidth because it's very expensive and there's 12 slots and there's huge dims in them, and you're done. Like, that's it. That's a low-effort Mac Pro. It would have better CPU performance than the current Mac Pro. It would have equal capacity. And, you know, the new AMD GPUs are actually giving uh, NVIDIA a run for the money lately. So you're basically done. Like, that's a great Mac Pro. The things that are bad about the current Mac Pro is the CPU is slow, right? The GPU is actually as good as whatever you can buy and stick in there. It's as good as you can make it, right? Apple does not have anything that competes with the top-end NVIDIA or AMD GPUs. And the integrated GPU, as amazing as it is for an integrated GPU, does not compete with the big uh, external ones. So the low-effort Mac Pro, I just want to throw out there, is still an option. Like, we keep talking about all these fantastical things they can do, but they can also make a low-effort Mac Pro. I don't think it's a bad machine. I think it's a machine that has a cooler, faster CPU, but has all of the same capacity. And thanks to the wonder of interchangeable parts and slots, the boring old, hey, I've just got a bunch of PCI slots, suddenly you can put a 6800 XT in there, which is an amazing new GPU from NVIDIA, or not NVIDIA, AMD. Um, and Apple likes AMD, and they just have drivers for it, and you're done. I know the whole thing we've been talking about is Apple's never going to use, uh, <laughs> they're only going to have Apple GPUs from now on, they're only going to write their own drivers, uh, Big Sur doesn't even ship uh, in the ARM version with any drivers for any GPUs other than the Apple integrated one, like the writing is on the wall that you're never going to see a third-party GPU in, in uh, you know, Apple Silicon-based Mac. We don't know the answers to those questions yet. All I'm saying is the low-effort Mac Pro is right out there as an option. It is entirely technically feasible, and I think it's actually still a good product, even if it's a little more boring. I think the the lowest effort Mac Pro would be just keep it on Intel. Boo. And I know this is not like a... I know, like, this is not the solution anybody <laughs> wants, and, and I'm pretty sure Apple's not going to do this. No, no. I mean, they said they're going to fully transition. The transition will take two years. They didn't have an asterisk that said, except the Mac Pro, which will never transition. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> like, like if they hadn't said that, I would I would possibly think this might be even even further out. Uh, but, yeah, you know, they, they did say that. So that but, but, you know, truly, like, the lowest effort would be just keep shipping Xeon workstations at the high end. And, but, you know, again, that's not their style and that's not what they're going to do. I do also think that they're going to keep having slots and there's going to, they're going to keep having interchangeable modular architecture. And, and so the way you do that is not by making some giant monster CPU that also has a bunch of G- 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 GPUs on it. The way you do that is by retaining some amount of modular expansion slots, whether it's RAM or cards or both. Most of the feedback here was actually very, very interesting to me because most of the feedback was way above my head, like way above my knowledge and expertise uh, from people who really know what they're what they're doing in this area. And it was really, really nice to hear like quite how large these other processors in the industry are that we use or, or that people can use. And so we know now that Apple can make a really giant M series chip if they want to that has tons of CPU cores, tons of GPU cores, as long as you can pay for it. I mean, like those, the 28-core Xeon W that's in the Mac Pro is like a $3,000 or $4,000 CPU. Uh, and, and granted, those are like, you know, Intel's prices. There are some profit margin there that Apple would be able to absorb into their total product price. But still, like, you know, you're talking thousands of dollars in manufacturing costs just for that CPU. Um, but while most... M computers, like most of the M-based Macs, I think are going to have no 
expansion possibilities whatsoever internally. Like you know, you're gonna you're gonna see similar things to the M1, you know, soldered on RAM that's that's on or near the package. Only GPUs that are built into the package that are built into the, into the actually on the chip. Um, I'm not expecting to see any kind of you know other other thing than that. Now, like now that I've heard from all these listeners and now that I see how big chips can get and still be part of like kind of mainstream products. I now no longer think they're going to kick the GPU off the off the CPU. I think GPU stays on, and the only question is how you physically interact with memory in a short, fast way. Even on the iMac, you think that? I think so, too. I think even on the iMac, I think we're going to have one giant chip. I, I, I think seeing the benchmarks uh, of the M1 in various scenarios, because people are just really benchmarking the heck out of it these days, the M1 wins everywhere until a real GPU comes walking along. You're like, well, who cares about that? I don't care about gaming. There's a bunch of video apps that do a lot on the GPU, and you'll take a slower, crappier Intel Mac and put a decent GPU in it, and it suddenly becomes twice twice as fast at, like, 8K video rendering or whatever, right? So, and, you know, it doesn't mean that, that Apple won't make that GPU, but they don't have anything that competes with that so far. And I, I do wonder if they have the will to do that. And especially given that AMD's new GPUs, because when it was just NVIDIA, like we know that it seems like Apple's just totally on the outs with them. They're not going to do anything. But the new AMD GPUs on their new architecture, it's the same architecture that the new consoles use as well, but bigger and beefier. They're really good. Um, and so in, in a top-end iMac, if someone buys that, they're not going to want it to be slower than their current iMac. And a lot of the tasks are GPU bound. So I'm pretty well convinced that there has to be a discrete GPU in the top end IMAX. Otherwise, the ARM based ones will be slower than the current IMAX for these kinds of tasks. Now, again, Apple could make that GPU, but we don't even have a hint of them doing that. So I'm I'm leaning pretty heavily towards a discrete in the top end IMAX. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's I didn't realize there was that big of a performance gap. So, yeah, that's that's very possible then. But regardless, I think. Almost every other Mac has everything in in or around the package, no separation of anything, and then only at the very high end, I think that's when you get separation. And it doesn't make sense. Again, it doesn't make sense for the Mac Pro to exist if there aren't expansion slots. Like it, it and, and Apple really, I think, very strongly communicated that that was the direction they intended to stay now that they like rebooted the Mac Pro, they, they got it back on track, that, that Pro's like, I think they're going to keep expansion slots. So I, I, th- I still think that's going to stay in that product, but I would be very surprised if any other Mac had any kind of expansion or nearly any kind of separation between the components at this point. Final bit of follow-up on the uh, making Macs bigger, faster, stronger uh, something to keep in mind with regard to die size, cooling, and everything else is that TSMC, who manufactures Apple system on chips, TSMC is not Intel. Uh, TSMC continues to make process advances. The latest story was about uh, the TSMC achieves major breakthrough in two nanometer manufacturing process. So to recap, the A14 and the M1 are at five nanometer. Two nanometer would make for even smaller and more transistors and even less area. It'd be pretty amazing. Um, and this headline confused me because someone sent this link and it was like, they achieved major breakthrough in two nanometer manufacturing process, comma, risk production in 2023. And you have to parse, like, are they trying to, like, you know, in headlines, when you leave out articles or whatever, you leave out certain words for, for compactness, for the tradition of trying to fit things on the printed page. Are they saying they risk 
like but risk production in or are they saying risk production with parentheses around it as an as a compound noun in 2023 and what is risk production so i looked it up uh and i found a couple definitions put a link in the show notes i think one of the plain english ones from tuna fish on hackers news was risk production means that the foundry says okay we think everything is fine now but we make no guarantees that it will work Customers then have the option of purchasing super expensive wafer starts. You have to look up what starts means because it's in a whole other lingo thing. Super expensive wafer starts that might or might not work. You might luck out and have lots of great next-gen chips months before your competitors. Or alternatively, you might get five working chips out of each $10,000 wafer. So that's what risk production means. So 2023 is the time horizon when conceivably, if you wanted to bend the bleeding edge, this would not be Apple. Although for, the, for really low volumes, who knows? conceivably at very low volumes at high risk you could get two nanometer parts out of tsmc which means that the 2024 mac pro you know all the numbers we gave you about die sizes and everything like that that's that's why in the graph where we pointed out that the that the a14 is actually smaller than the a13 despite having more stuff in it uh, again that five nanometers shrinking down to two nanometers doesn't mean they're going to be half as big for the same number of transistors but that means they're going to be smaller so you know, we're we're back on we're not it's not that we're back on the Moore's Law curve because you know Moore's Law will end. We've discussed this before. But whatever curve we were on with Intel, we're not on that one anymore. So expect every couple of years to have maybe for the next couple of rounds to have a process shrink and to have that process shrink ripple across Apple's products and really sort of give us continuing benefits. That's that was another one of the questions of a lot of the feedback we got is like uh, can we expect this level of advancement with the M2, M3, M4? First, the easy answer is no, because you went from Intel that was stagnant to ARM, which is not. But you also shouldn't expect the M2 to be like 3% faster than the M1, right? We're on a better curve than we had been, but we're, there's not going to be another leap where the M2 is seven times faster or whatever, right? So things are looking up, but keep your expectations in check. But don't forget, shrinks will happen and shrinks are good. Do you think a wafer start is kind of like, you know how, like, I, I think, don't the silicon wafers start out as like a big log and they get sliced? Do you think a wafer start is like like the butt of the bread, but for the silicon log? No, I think it's more like a sourdough bread starter. Oh, okay. Where you have to like grow it for a while, feed it additional <laughs> silicon every day? It's neither one of those things. I didn't put the link in the show notes for wafer starts or starts in in uh, silicon manufacturing, but you can look that up as well. But risk production was, uh, was a new one for me. That's why I put it in the link, so. One and one one final bit about ARM Max. This is not about making them faster, but just just to note um, the Alexander graph. Uh, this story has already gone around a lot today, but from earlier in the week, um, has successfully virtualized uh, ARM Windows on Apple Silicon using QEMU plus a bunch of patches. Um, so, as we know, Microsoft does not officially support any of Apple's ARM Max with Windows, despite the fact that Microsoft itself uh, has a version of Windows that runs on ARM, and they have their own hardware that it runs on ARM. Um, but their hardware sucks because it doesn't use Apple Silicon. And so if you run uh, ARM Windows on an M1 Mac in this QEMU virtualization environment, it's about twice as fast as the fastest uh, actual native Windows ARM hardware you can buy because Apple Silicon is better. So it's still, you know, as we said back when the M uh, the ARM Mac introduction, it's the ball is in Microsoft's court. Um, technically speaking, there is nothing stopping Windows from running natively on ARM Macs except for Microsoft, which has thus far not decided to support them. 
Uh, I feel like Apple wants Microsoft to support Windows on Macs just because for the same reason Apple put that time and energy into bootcamp because it's thing some of their customers find valuable and it makes Macs more valuable and more versatile. Uh, so I hope those two crazy kids work this out because I really do want Windows <laughs> on our Macs. Uh, Marco, we haven't had a chance to talk about your new toy. And oh, the time, the time. Marco, we do have to do Ask ATP. That stinks. All well, there right. Was, there was, I did push one follow up item about multi chip modules down to next week, but uh, I, I think you, you can't avoid it any longer, Casey. The public needs to know about the uh, <sighs> iPhone Mini. Great. Well, if you'll notice, what I named this topic was Marco's Mini Reviews, plural. Oh. He's got the Mac Mini, too, right? I got mm. it. No, not yet. No, we'll see. <laughs> They're currently the uh, the build to order Mac Minis are currently saying that they're going to ship in January, in late January at that. Mm. Uh, So yeah, maybe not. Maybe that plan is not going to happen. But uh, no, my mini reviews are for my iPhone 12 Mini and my HomePod Minis. That's right. So many many things, or as 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 Merlin would say, many many things. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, poor Merlin. I'm from Ohio too. I get it. Just not that part of Ohio. Anyway. The HomePod Mini is where I'll start. Everybody seemed a lot more excited about this product than I think is ultimately deserved. And it's not to say that it's a bad product. It's a fine product. There are a couple of places that I have enjoyed HomePods. Um, Let's say the smallest rooms in my house. (laughs) <laughs> in in the you know for the past however long the home pod's been out but year and a half or two and a half years whatever it's been um i've enjoyed the home pod for that purpose but it's a bit big uh and it's a bit expensive to to waste in the smallest rooms of your house and so the home pod mini is actually really good for that like i i have swapped it in for that role and it is fantastic for that and it's also good in contexts where what you're mostly going for is the voice assistant and not necessarily like music listening or where the quality of the music being played isn't that important. But I don't think anybody with that list of qualifications is buying HomePods of any size. The whole reason you buy HomePods is that they sound pretty good. And if you really wanted like the voice assistant part as the primary role of it, you're probably going to want an Alexa device instead because they're generally better at that. Anyway, I had two HomePod minis as a stereo pair two HomePod uh, Maxis, I guess, as a stereo pair. <laughs> wow. And also a new Amazon Echo. And then I also tested out all of them as... Uh, I only had one Echo. I also tested them out as um, just mono uh, single speakers. Uh, just by, you know, unplugging one of each thing and te- and unconfiguring the stereo pair and testing it just as, as mono. The HomePod Mini is this tiny little ball about the size of a grapefruit. It's 100 bucks. The current, which is actually like a brand new generation of $100 Amazon Echo, like the main middle-of-the-road Echo, is also 100 bucks. also a ball, but much larger, more like uh, it goes from a grapefruit up to like a, almost a, a little bit bigger than a softball, I think. Grapefruits are bigger than softballs, right? It's, it isn't a big grapefruit. It's, it's one of like, the, one of like the, the smaller ones. Maybe a large orange. Is the Amazon one like a crystal ball, like a fortune teller? Um, actually it's almost like a, like the original magic eight ball. Hmm. So, okay. Grapefruit, grapefruit and softball were wrong. It's more like (laughs) large orange and magic eight ball. Is it bigger than a bread box? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the hell's a bread box. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and whereas the home pod, like the full size home pod is 
about two thirds the size of a trash can Mac Pro. Um, so if only there was some common unit of measurement we could use <laughs> to express only, the size of things only. in a way the listeners can understand. Oh, well. Well, you say that, but then we would use inches and everyone would complain and moan about how backwards Americans are. Yeah, it's just it's a millihomepod and a kilohomepod. We'll do it in, in, in uh, plonk lengths. Plank, plonk. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Anyway, what you might expect is that the sound quality goes up proportionally with price, and it doesn't. What you might expect instead is the sound quality maybe goes up proportionally with size. Because really, when you have HomePod Mini, Amazon Echo, Ball thing, and HomePod Maxi all in a row, it is like kind of like, you know, small, medium, large. They're, they're, it's a nice size ramp. And that is pretty much true. That is effectively how this how the sound ramps up. Because, you know, speakers, at, same thing with microphones, by the way, you really can't defeat physics after a while. You can play some tricks... You can be really clever, but if you're trying to have a, a point source emitting sound that is not extremely close to your ears, you're going to have a hard time making that sound good if the point source is really small or really far away from you or a very small source in a very big room or you know some other kind of like large difference in the physics between like the, the, the ratios or the proportions or the distances that you're trying to go. Or it doesn't move a lot of air, right? Is another factor. Right. Yeah. You know, it's sheer displacement here. Like, because it's, you're dealing with a physical thing. You know, sound waves are physical compression waves. You have to, you know, it's, at some point, physics is going to win. I, I don't have a current gen Echo Dot, but I bet if I had a Dot, I bet it would fit in right below the Mini in size and sound quality. But the dot costs like less than half or about half of the mini's price. And I bet it isn't half as much worse. Similarly, the Amazon Echo costs exactly the same as the HomePod Mini. Actually, when when it's as it frequently is on sale, it costs significantly less. And the new, you know, the new, you know, whatever, what did I say? Magic 8 ball sized <laughs> Amazon Echo sounds significantly better than the HomePod Mini. So it's the same price. It sounds way better, and the voice assistant is way faster and way more reliable and way better. So ultimately, if you're looking to spend $100 on a voice assistant speaker thing, the Amazon Echo is a way better choice overall than the HomePod Mini. That being said, the HomePod Mini is a HomePod, and therefore you know, it uses Siri instead. To many people, that's a feature, not a bug. To me, it's kind of a wash. They, they're both idiots in different ways. Um, it's like the three of us. So, uh, it's, it's not an amazing home run product. And if you, if you compare the sound from the mini to the full size home pod, it's clear as day. Like, oh yeah, the full size home pod sounds way better, especially where the mini especially falls down. It's a massive difference in bass. The mini basically has no bass whatsoever. And the regular home pod has surprisingly good bass for its size, which, cause the regular home pod is still, in the world of speakers, is still small. In the world of, you know, smart speakers, it's maybe maybe medium to large, but, like, in the world of speakers as a whole, it's quite small, and it competes very well with stereo speakers that are much larger than it, especially when you have two of them. So I think, ultimately, the, the regular HomePod sounds like it's twice as good, and it's about twice the size. Unfortunately, it's nearly four times the price officially, and so I think if you can actually have the HomePod, the full-size HomePod, at its frequent sale price of 200 ish dollars, 
that's a fantastic buy, and that is totally rational and sensible as twice as much as the HomePod Mini because it's about twice as good. As for the HomePod Mini itself, like where it's left, it's kind of, you know, the, the size kind of suggests its quality pretty well compared to the other ones. Uh, if you have a, a role in your house that you want to fill with a very small smart speaker that is not that expensive and is not that good sounding, but where that might not matter or you might not care, it's a good buy. I'll, I'll give it that. Um, but that's a lot of ifs. And if you want something to like, you know, play music in your kitchen or something, the Echo is going to be better for that or the full-size HomePod. As with the other HomePod, if you can afford two of them, it is great and it's way better than just one. However, even in a stereo pair, the HomePod mini is not uh, a real winner with sound. It doesn't make up for for its uh, its lack of bass or the rest of it being kind of okay. Whereas like a stereo pair of the full-size HomePods really does sound quite good almost in almost any room. I would strongly suggest if you if you have, you know, a role in maybe the smaller rooms in your house where you're mostly playing podcast and you don't care about sound quality. Yeah, go for it. It's nice, it's inexpensive. If Apple would have made the HomePod mini the size of the current Amazon Echo instead, it wouldn't have been as small. But people don't really need these things to be super small. So did they make it super small because Apple, even though nobody was really asking for it to be quite this small, if it's going to sound quite this mediocre? Or do they make it this small because at $100, their profit margins wouldn't allow them to give it like two drivers? Because like, like one of the reasons it sounds so bad is that it doesn't have a separate woofer and tweeter. It has only one driver. And then it has these, quote, passive radiators on the sides to kind of enhance bass response. I think I don't know. I don't know enough about speaker design to know what those do. Um, but every other speaker in this price category has multiple speakers inside. There's usually a subwoofer and a tweeter or a woofer and a tweeter uh, at least. And so if they prioritized size here, I think that was the wrong move. If they could have shipped something with better speaker drivers and maybe more of them at this price point, I think they should have. Um, but ultimately that could have just been a price decision as well. It's a fine product, but it's not competitive with the Echoes at, at the similar price points. So a couple things that I wanted to touch back on. Uh, first of all, you had made mention that you don't have an Echo Dot. We have year-old Echo Dots, so it would not at all surprise me if these are now out of date. But I can tell you with a fact, they sound like trash. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, which, which is fine. I mean, when if we're going to put on music on the Echo Dots, it's because we're trying to get like multi-room going and we just want seamless music throughout. And we only have these upstairs. So, you know, we just want seamless music throughout the upstairs. We are not listening, you know, like what is it? The Maxell or whatever it was called that I've mentioned before, the advertisement with guys with his hair blown back. Um, we're not sitting there like listening and really paying attention. We just want some ambient stuff on. And for that, it's fine. Uh, but they sound like garbage, unequivocally. Uh, the other thing you said is that the HomePod Mini has no bass. And that alarms me greatly because I am not that much of a <laughs> kind of guy. But my understanding of your music preferences is that they are not particularly bassy, generally speaking. And so if you're saying with your comparatively tinny music preferences that they're not very bassy, someone who likes something that is less fish and more, I don't know, like 
Basie, that could be quite the deal breaker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, this if you care at all about music sound quality, this is not a product for you, period. <laughs> like, end of story, that's it. And, and, you know, generally, like, in the world of smart speakers, they don't sound great. You know, because, again, part of the physics mentioned earlier is every one of these speakers and the whole industry of, like, sound bars, which I also hate sound bars. Ugh, what an amazing branding for such a stupid concept. But anyway, um, the, the sound bar problem, which is the same problem that, that almost every smart speaker has, is that they try to play tricks to defeat physics, to try to make a wider soundscape, basically. You know, to simulate having multiple speakers in the room when you're actually broadcasting sound just from one point. And so you have to do things like try to bounce the sound off the walls or in the corners or whatever. And while that's a real thing, you can indeed, you know, bounce sound that way. In practice, it doesn't work very well in most rooms. And it's not as good. It's not nearly as good as just having like two different speakers that are just one at the left, one at the right. Like it's not nearly that good. Similarly, all these speakers try to somehow sound okay while broadcasting from one single point in a room oftentimes that can't be like the ideal space that you want maybe want to put a speaker if you cared about sound quality so like you know you're dealing with these compromised physics situations here and so all smart speakers kind of have to be graded on a curve and so from that point of view you could use the homepod mini and okay convenient convenient and fun fine but if you're going for convenient and fun i honestly i would go for the echo again like unless you really love Siri over Alexa for a particular reason that's very important to you. So it could be privacy. It could be maybe some of Apple's integrations. AirPlay 2 is a big one. And I love AirPlay 2. And even though the uh, latest release of iOS has made it incredibly buggy. Thanks. Thanks, HomePod Mini. Um, but if you don't have a, a significant reason to prefer HomePods specifically, it's not a great product. Because even by the grading on a curve that you have to do for smart speakers... And even though the regular HomePod, the full-size HomePod, almost eliminated that curve. Like, you don't have to grade that on a curve. You can just grade it as a nice speaker, and it does pretty well for its price point, especially at the discount price point. Um, but the HomePod Mini just doesn't. Like, it doesn't, it's not a great product. It's a cute, small product that is fine. But Apple, I think, cut a, a few too many corners on this one, and, and it, it, they should have gone a little bit higher. And and even if they had to make it cost, you know, one twenty nine instead of ninety nine, if it could have had significantly better drivers in there, and maybe two separate ones, that would have gone a long way towards sound quality. And if it made it a little bit bigger, oh well, nobody cares. I just want to add that while you were talking about this, my wife messaged me to say, "quote Siri sucks." <laughs> <laughs> now here's the thing. Is she listening to the show live and wanted to chime in about uh, chime in about the fact that Siri is not as good a voice assistant as the Amazon Echo, or is she just living in my house where Siri exists and occasionally does things that annoy us? It's no, there's no way to tell because <laughs> very often people in our house will have complaints about Siri that are unrelated to listening to a live podcast. So yeah, Siri's still got some catching up to do. Yeah. Oh, and we've we've fired our Sonos stuff and and it's so good. It's I'm so happy without the buggy. It, Sonos makes some good products. The Sonos amp is awesome. Like I love the Sonos amp. It's it's a stereo speaker amp with AirPlay 2 with it with TV inputs and analog inputs. It's wonderful. 
I love my Sonos amp. That is what that was what drives my my TV speakers. The reason I love the Sonos amp is that it doesn't have any smart integration. <laughs> and and where the Sonos products really fall down is the ones that integrate the Alexa support and try to make these combo voice controlled smart products. I don't know what it is about that integration, but it's buggy. All the reviews people were complaining about them about the Alexa integration being buggy. And I thought, oh, maybe that was just like, you know, beta 1.0 software issues. And maybe they've made it better now, like, you know, multiple years in. No, they haven't. It's still really buggy. And the Sonos Move, I, f- I feel the same way about. Like, we, we have one of those. I just want to sell it now. Like, I, I, want, I want out of that entire ecosystem. Anything in that ecosystem that has voice support, I want out of it. Um, so I'm just going to be unloading those things probably. Um, but the Sonos Amp is wonderful uh, because it, it keeps it dumb. It, it lacks both the buggy Alexa support and any reason to ever use Sonos' apps for anything. So it's great. Like, I just use it as my TV speaker, and it's an AirPlay 2 destination. It's wonderful, and that's it. Well, that took a lot longer than I expected. So let's do some Ask ATP. <laughs> no, we have to do the iPhone mini. I, I, I think I actually might have less to say about the iPhone 12 mini. All right, go ahead. All right, so I got my, my kind of red iPhone 12 mini. <laughs> 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 the the back of it is not even close to red, uh, but that's okay. I never look at the back. The sides are red, and they are delightful. And every time I see the aluminum sides of my phone, it just makes me smile. I love the way this phone looks. In the hand, it feels fantastic. In the pocket, it feels even better. I have been using it without a case so far. I have the Apple case. Uh, I figure kind of, you know, maybe just in, like if I can ever travel again i'm probably going to want a case or maybe i figured i might try it for like a week and see what i like better the screen size is great on the mini you know i i don't feel like i've lost any screen real estate because i didn't like they they did just shrink the 10 10s and 11 pro screen to fit this size now so like screen real estate wise it's the same they just made the pixel smaller now on the small pixel side between the 12 mini which is shrunking the pixels, and my new MacBook Air, which I'm running at its default resolution, whereas compared to my 16-inch, I ran at its native resolution, which is larger pixels. I'm looking at everything a little bit smaller now, and I'm starting to feel, hmm, I'm 38 and a half now. (laughs) Uh, I've never worn glasses, but I don't have many years left of not needing any vision correction and and having good uniform vision i'm i'm i can kind of feel it slightly slipping away and as i am using these two new devices that have more dense screens than what i was using before i'm i'm noticing that i'm noticing like hey this this is a little bit harder to read than it, than it might have been a few years ago even though what i've just done is re- is go back to the density of all the phones before the 10 like that's that's what this density is. It's it's the same density that the that the you know six and seven had, um, but I I am kind of thinking like this might be a one year thing because I, I might have issues with just looking at very small things you know within the next year or two. You can crank up the zoom though, right? Didn't ask you during setup which size you prefer. Well, I can, but then I lose screen real estate, and that I would be less willing to to lose that possibly. But I mean, we'll see. I mean, but you still keep the the good hand feel and the good pocket feel, right? Yeah, maybe. I, I'm I'm kind of hoping that um, that maybe maybe in in future revisions they might reduce the weight 
of the of the middle pro line a little bit because like they're so dense and heavy and I, I feel like that got worse this year anyway um so otherwise though like it feels wonderful grip wise i'm still getting used to not having a leather case because this is the first time i haven't had a leather case since the 5s i i'm still getting used to like picking it up off you know with the edges and having i, I kind of still feel like i'm gonna drop it all the time um so that that's another reason why i might try the case another reason is that in my previous caseless days the foam would rest flat because there was no camera bump now there's a camera bump and so with no case the phone does not rest flat yeah it's infuriating that, that's one of the main reasons i use a case these days i demand that it both lay flat and not make me nervous about scratching it. but laying flat yeah that's why i really was upset by the uh the apple leather pro max case which adds a bump on the bump so even when you get the case, yeah. it doesn't lay flat. Uh, I was afraid that would be true of all the cases, but uh, apparently not on the non-max size of Apple cases and certainly not on the uh, Senate case that I'm using. Laying flat is a major feature. Yeah, exactly. And also just like having a little bit of that tackiness grip when you're on a surface. Like I think I'm ultimately probably going to go with a case, but I, I want to try a case that's a little while longer because it just feels so good. And it looks really good. Again, like I love the red uh, aluminum edge. I absolutely love it. I like it way better than any of the other colors. Performance-wise, battery-wise, the battery is uh, noticeably lower. Like, as everybody said, yeah, I do get less battery life. It has not been a problem yet. And ultimately, if I'm going to, like, ever travel with this phone, which, honestly, it's probably not going to be a whole lot of that, but <laughs> but if I'm going to ever travel with this phone, I would probably want some kind of, like, MagSafe battery. If Apple would make that, that would be awesome. I don't know. I don't think anyone else has made one yet, but that would be great. Like a little like thing you could just stick on the back for for charging in your pocket sometimes, but not all the time. That would be wonderful. Uh, but that doesn't exist yet, so we'll see. I haven't actually tried MagSafe yet. I've just been using my regular Qi charger that I've that I've been using for years, like on my nightstand. Um, so I haven't tried that yet because uh, ultimately, what I want for MagSafe is something that is stationary on the nightstand that like i don't want their their weird little travel wallet they unveiled for way too much money yesterday like i don't, I don't want that i don't want just like the loose cable i want like a dock that is basically a magnetic chi charging stand like that or yeah, the pad or whatever that's what i want and i don't i don't know that there's a lot of those on the market yet but anyway that's been another issue with the mini with dock like things if you have a dock that's made for quote-unquote normal phones the mini is so small that depending on your luck, it may be that the coils don't align as well because the mini is shorter. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and so either it doesn't charge as fast because it's misaligned or in some of them it just won't charge at all because the, the thing thinks it's misaligned and won't charge it. I don't think this is a big problem. Panzer posted about it when it first came out, but it is something to keep in mind because the mini is so different than the average size phone. If you just have a generic phone charger or even worse, a charger that is custom made to fit like a galaxy note or some other huge thing uh be careful and think about it before you buy it yeah so otherwise like other than like you know the battery being a little bit low and you know having having a dilemma on whether i want to use a case or not otherwise i'm loving this thing it does feel a little bit like going back in time in the sense that it is so much smaller and lighter and you do have less screen physical size and so for things like watching video and stuff, it's like slightly worse than the, than the big phones. But ultimately, you know, we're talking about what a half an inch or something or like a, a one inch screen size difference. That's a lot proportionally, but you're still watching video on a tiny screen. 
And so if you if you're you're trying to decide whether you want to watch video on a tiny screen or a tinier screen, like it's they're both massive compromises compared to like a TV or even a laptop. So that almost doesn't matter at all. Um, camera wise, so far I have not missed the 2x camera that much. I have taken pictures where I have zoomed in digitally, but usually not to the full 2x. And the digital zoom has been good enough for my, like, you know, 1.4, 1.6 kind of range. It's been good enough for that. Um, there have been some pictures where, you know, we take pictures, like, around a dark dinner table. Like, we, th- we took our Thanksgiving dinner pictures around our dark table, and Tiff had her Max, and I had my Mini, and her pictures did look better. They did have a little bit more detail. But I had to, like, zoom in and, like, and really look for the difference. And so from my point of view, as, as a much more casual iPhone photographer, like I don't, I don't, I'm not a pro iPhone photographer. I barely post on Instagram. I, I am, you know, I don't shoot raw. I don't use Halide or any of the fancy apps that people who are really good at this stuff use. Uh, I just, you know, shoot with the built-in camera and occasionally tweak the photos a little bit and occasionally post some of them to Instagram. But even then, it's, it's pretty rare. And so from my point of view, the One X camera is great. And digital zoom when I need it so far has been okay. Uh, if there were a 2x option on this size, no question I would pay extra for that. I would definitely take that. But there isn't. And so ultimately, I do like the size a lot, even despite that. Um, finally, the speaker seems to be... I, like Some of the reviews tried, tried to say that the speakers were kind of comparable between them. They're not. The speaker on this one is a little bit lower volume and a little bit worse than the bigger ones, but it's not a big difference. Uh, it's it's not a difference that I, that I would consider fatal, and I use the speaker a lot, mostly for podcasts because it sounds like an Echo Dot for music. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, ultimately, I'm very happy with it. I'm a little scared that no one's buying it because when I look at my stats in Overcast, there's not a lot of 12 mini compared to the other ones. So I'm a little worried about that. This might be like a one-off thing and like they might not make another one next year or ever. If that's the case, if this is not like a regularly updated product line, I'm not going to like hang on to this forever. I don't love it so much that I would do that. Like if there, if next year the lineup is similar, but without a mini option, I'll just go back to the, you know, the, the smallest pro like I have for the last few years. But if this is still an option next year, I'll probably take it because it it just feels so good. It's so light. It's so small, but it's not too small. It doesn't feel too cramped. I haven't had problems like with the keyboard accuracy or anything like that. Like it doesn't feel too small. It's just right on that edge, but it's not. <laughs> so ultimately, I'm very happy with it. Um and and yeah we'll see we'll see how the rest of the year goes we'll see like what i think about it if if i travel with it i'm sure the battery life will be a hit there we'll see you know how the lack of the 2x camera plays out over the year but for at least this year i'm very happy with it i'm very happy with the almost red color that i picked and yeah i i uh, I guess i'll keep you posted on on my exit interview (laughs) at least at the end of the year to see uh, what i think what i think then i think i survived this you're not making me feel that much FOMO, which we all know for me, it's, it's, but, a, but a small breeze that can, that can get me right into the FOMO side of the world. You haven't felt one yet. Yeah. Well, just wait. I don't know. So far, <laughs> so far, I, I'm not, I'm not feeling terrible, terrible amounts of FOMO. So I consider this a success. 
All right, let's do some Ask ATP like for real this time. Matthew Taylor writes, is it possible to disable the fan on the new M1 MacBook Pro? Does Big Sur contain a setting for such, or do you know of a third-party app that can do so, thus forcibly restricting system-wide performance to a fan-off thermal envelope? What annoys me about my current 2015 MacBook Pro is fan noise. I'd love to be able to make fan usage an option I control. I... I understand the question, but I have a few problems with this. Like, first of all, anyone I have heard, read, spoken to who has one of these says that the fans almost never kick on, first of all. Second of all, if you don't if you don't want fan noise, buy a, buy a MacBook Air. Like, that'll fix yeah. the problem for you. It's nearly the same computer. Right, exactly. Oh, by the way, oh my God. Just a very quick update on how I am liking my MacBook Air. I love it so much. It, You know what I love so much about it? Not the color. The color, I think, was a mistake. <laughs> I got the gold. Probably a mistake. It's. Oh, I could have told you that. Yeah, but but it, it, it does do one thing though. It makes it look new and different. Because I, I, while I know the gold has existed for for a couple of years in that product, then for even more years before that on the twelve inch, uh, although that was a different gold. But anyway, I've never had it, so it's new to me. There's never been one in the house, even. So it, that is new. So to me, like the, if you don't get a weird color on this on this product you can't even tell what it is you can't tell that it's this radical new cool thing and for many people that's a feature but for me i kind of felt like you know i, I kind of want this radically different new awesome thing to look different to look new i'm so tired of space gray space gray is i i'm i'm way way over it silver is what i probably should have bought but i've had silver laptops now for how many years like it's it's fine. It's it's a great color, but like it just it just looks it made it look and feel older, I think. So I'm very happy that I got this weird gold, orange, pink, whatever it is color, um, because it looks different. Even though I actually don't like it in some in certain lighting, <laughs> but in certain lighting I do. You got to get some skins. No, that's those are I, I've tried that. I, I've I've been down that road. It's not. <laughs> it's a, not. You for put me. a paper like thing on your iPad. Why not? Put a skin on your MacBook Air. Although very finding different. one that won't clash with the gold is a problem now, but you did that, you did that to yourself. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. you played yourself. But one other thing, it doesn't have a touch bar. Oh my God, I'm so happy. I love, like, hey, you want to turn on the volume? Just tap one tap, not two. You don't have to wake it up first and then find where the button is and then drag it down. Nope, one tap on a button. Boop, volume's down. You want to increase the brightness? Oh, boop, one brightness. Don't make people tell you about the tap-drag gesture, because they're going to. I know about the tap-drag. You still have to tap it to wake it up. I know. Well, I'm just reminding... I know that you know, but people don't know. I'm saving you. I know. And also, by the way, don't don't write in to tell me what a bread box is. I know. My grandmother had one. Yeah. Also, don't tell me about a better tuck stool and how much better it makes the tuck bar. (laughs) I've tried that, too. Still hate it. So, anyway. You know what? Can Can we explore that just briefly? Can we explore that briefly? Because when I got my uh, MacBook Pro six months ago, which was the first touch bar to be in my own home, um, first of all, I don't have particularly strong feelings about the touch bar. Like, I don't think it adds anything, but it doesn't actively piss me off like it does a lot of people I know, including you, Marco. Um, But I thought to myself, well, you know, I should use Better Touch Tool for doing cool stuff. And I think we spoke about on the show you know, that one of the things I did was put like a little emoji representing uh, whether or not the garage door was open on the on the touch bar, not because it needed to be there, but just because I thought it was a neat thing to try. And it worked, but 
I personally found Better Touch Tool to be extremely unreliable and very crashy and just did not work well with the touch bar at all. Now, it very well could have been user error. And honestly, if it was, I don't care because I don't think I care enough to go digging and figuring out why this was the case. I I know other people have had very good experiences with Better Touch Tool with the touch bar. But for me, it just felt like a pile of hacks that just wasn't really for me. And, And so... Those of you who are better touch tool fans, I respect that, but I don't know. I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I mean, and in all fairness, the touch bar is very buggy and crashy and unreliable, even stock. Uh, but yeah, I am so happy with this laptop. Not having a touch bar to me is like not having a fan. Like it's just, it's wonderful. It's like <laughs> here's this thing that occasionally annoyed me, and now it's just gone. Wonderful. I hear you. And I was thinking too, like it's probably going to have a longer lifespan. Because there's no moving parts. Like, you know, I'm having this problem with my iMac being filled with dust after three years. Laptops have that problem, too. Many people frequently have problems with their laptops, like where the fans spin up like crazy way more than they did when they were new. And some of that's, you know, because of weirdness and, and, you know, maybe thermal compound degrading. But some of that's also because stuff's just really full of dust in there and it's hard to get it out. And so when you eliminate the fan, you eliminate not only the noise and annoyance of that, but so many problems that could occur in the future as you use this machine for years and years that I think, you know, ultimately the the main limiting factor of this is probably going to be the battery lifespan, not anything else about it unless, you know, it gets damaged uh, because it's there's just nothing about it to really go wrong. And that's yet another feature of the air. And again, you look at the lineup and, you know, going back to this Ask ATP question that I really interrupted, sorry, Casey. Uh, like, it, <laughs> I, I'm with you, like, if you're if you're looking into the MacBook Pro, the current one, the 13-inch, you know, kind of mini MacBook Pro, uh, and you're worried about the fan noise, just get the air. I mean, even though people have said that it's really hard to make the fan turn on, like if that's a if that's going to be a, a a main priority for you, just get the air because it's nearly the same computer. Yeah, I don't think it's about the fan turning on. Like I would, I don't recommend getting the air if you want want a MacBook Pro. If you want a MacBook Pro, get one. You like the reports basically say that even though the fan is spinning, it's spinning so slow that you can't even hear it. If you have a 2015 MacBook Pro and you're annoyed by fan noise, don't use that as as a Agreed. way to measure how you're going to feel about the the MacBook Pro with the M1 in it. Just get the MacBook Pro with the M1 in it. All reports have said. You you will, if someone just tells you it's fanless, you won't even know because even when people are running benchmarks for ten minutes, it was like like Gruber was saying he literally could not hear it. He put his ear right up to the thing. He you know running a benchmark, he couldn't hear it. Right, the fan is in there and it is spinning, but it's spinning so slow that it's not going to be anything like your dust filled twenty fifteen MacBook Pro. So if that's <laughs> if you want the M one based MacBook Pro, just buy it. If you're if you want to be sure you're not going to hear a fan, get the air. But um, I don't want to steer people away because all the reviews have been unanimous and saying like yeah it's got a fan but don't worry you won't hear it it's not like the fan on your current intel macbook pro also to actually answer the question <laughs> before we move on oh yeah you, you can get software to, to turn off the fans in fact you can uh i forget which app i use but i did it on my mac pro i can stop all the fans on my mac pro which is not advisable don't do you can watch the temperatures just go up right um but yeah you can do that but don't please don't do that <laughs> now i have a question so the way those programs like like Coolbook, like the way those used to work, is you know they they would interact somehow with the power management unit of the computer. I don't know how the, I don't know by what mechanism they could do that, but um, I would expect first of all I would expect all of that to be different on the on the M1 base Max, possibly not to be available at all for software to modify, 
or if it is available, it will probably be a while before the apps are updated to support it. Um, I mean, these, they update pretty quickly. Like, the, it took. Remember when we were going through this with my Mac Pro? It took a while for any app to support fan control, but eventually, what, because it's the Mac, you're not limited in the same way you are on iOS devices. So, yes, it is an M1 and it's new, and they'll have to come up with new stuff. But they will do it. Like, there's nothing that's stopping them. So, unless they don't have access to it, like unless there is no API they can call to modify that on the M1 architecture, which is possible. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm curious though, John, because like the way those used to work is they were able to adjust the minimum speed so they could speed the fan up, but they couldn't slow it down beneath what the unit wanted to run it at. If temperatures reached a certain level, like it would, the system would enforce its minimum speed no matter what you told these apps to do. So all these apps could do would be to increase the speed so that maybe you could, if you wanted to like, that's the reason why it's called Coolbook is like you could, you could run your laptop cooler by having the fan blow faster. So you're saying that with your Mac Pro, it was able to actually lower the speed beneath what it would normally be? So I didn't play the full game of chicken to see, hey, what happens <laughs> if I just leave it like this? But you could put it into manual control. I think the app I was using was TG Pro. You can put it into manual control, and it basically gave you sliders. Uh, and you'd mm. hear what the fan level is at now, and you'd move the slider down, and it would get quieter. And then you'd watch your temps start going up. Right. So clearly it's whatever I'm doing, I'm making it be below what it would want to go because the temp would start climbing and climbing. And, and then I just put it back into automatic because I didn't want to see what would happen. You know, like if it, you know, like I don't want I didn't want to find where the limits are on my very expensive computer. But I'm pretty sure that it really was bringing the fans down to below where they wanted to be. Uh, you know, it could be that the default mode is above the minimum to, to your point. Like maybe there's a minimum and they don't run at the minimum. They run like in the middle. Um, but it did give me a slider, and you could slide it all the way to the end. And it did make it quieter, and it did make the temperatures go up. But please, don't do this to your computer, especially an M1 MacBook Pro. Just get it, and just tell yourself there's no fan in it, and see if you ever hear it. As a, another quick aside from the Ask ATP that will never end, I uh, recorded using prior sponsor uh, channels. I recorded a couple of things, a couple of the holiday specials off ABC, and I was running them through Final Cut Pro in order to take the commercials out. And I rendered them. These are like 45 minute, maybe an hour, 10 minute total um, uh, television programs. And they were 720. Uh, The source was 60 frames per second, which I did not keep. And I've cranked it back to 30, I believe. But I was rendering them out of Final Cut Pro. There were no like fancy transitions. There was no weirdness to them. Uh, I did render them as HEVC uh, on my iMac Pro. One of them took literally like six or seven hours. I have no idea why. I, nothing else was going on on my computer that was abnormal. And af- after that was done, I very nearly bought myself a new Mac Mini. Cause I was <laughs> like, this is preposterous. Now, the, uh, it, I know I'm a media pack rat. I know I have very esoteric and peculiar needs when it comes to media stuff. It is unusual for me to be going into Final Cut Pro and doing these sorts of things. Um, but, but, I don't know why it took so long. You know, people are already unloading in the chat. What about hardware encoding? What about hardware encoding? Yes, it has hardware encoding. I know it does. I have no idea why Final Cut Pro, or yeah, it's not Final Cut Pro 10. It's just Final Cut Pro now. Uh, I don't know why it took so darn long, but I started it around lunchtime and it didn't finish until around dinner time. I have no idea why, but oh my goodness. Was it was it using the hardware? Because I, I think the hardware is not infinitely capable and I'm not sure under what scenarios Final Cut will choose to use the you know, the HEVC encoder that's in the Intel CPU versus not. One of the big things is that if it has 10-bit video coloring, um, that it, it can't use the T2. And that may have been, in fact, I 
think that might have been it now that you say that. But either way, I have encoded like, you know, uh, H.264 stuff. I've re-encoded as HEVC in order to save uh, storage space on the, on the other end. So if it's something that I'm, you know, it's not critical to me that it's in the original uh, form factor in which I downloaded or the original uh, codec I, I downloaded it You in. mean ripped? Uh, it's, it depends on what we're talking about. I take what <laughs> I take your point, but it depends on what we're talking about. Um, but nevertheless, I can do. I can usually on the iMac Pro get anywhere between one X and like three X uh, with the CPU doing HEVC encodes, and this was like one tenth X, and maybe it was the ten bit thing. I don't know. But yeah. well, you, I mean, you'll you'll know because if it's using the T two acceleration, the CPU will be almost idle. Like right. you'll be yeah, able yeah. to see it in iStat menus. Like the CPU is doing almost nothing. Yep. I don't know, whatever. It, it was just, it was <laughs> hearing all these people saying, oh, I can render in Final Cut Pro so fast. Uh, it, it was it was quite the sales pitch for me getting a new Mac, which hand, hand to God, I do not want a new Mac. I don't want a new MacBook Pro right now. I probably will soon. I do not want a new iMac right now. Probably will soon. All right, listeners, you hear it here. So which do you think happens first? Who caves, me or Casey? <laughs> uh, okay, which, no, hold on. Which of us has a different Mac or desktop by first? <laughs> well, so I, I, that's an interesting. That's actually a very interesting question because I, sitting here now, I really don't have any need or desire. He says with little confidence to change my iMac. Um, I really do think, though, as soon as there's a four port, thirteen inch MacBook Pro, it's quite likely I'm going to pull the trigger real soon. And you already did. I mean, you've already lost that fight in the laptop department. So, I mean, I already won. Yeah, well, but like, I mean, me buying new laptops is a given. That's true. But desktops, that's an event. That's also true. I don't know. All right, we should probably get back to SKTP. <laughs> How long ago <laughs> right. did we start this? Uh, Brian Hoffman writes, can you guys explain what you don't like about Apple News? Is it just the UI or is there something more? Your comments over the last few years brush it off as almost an obvious to all pile of garbage. But for me, it's become my go-to news source. I'm also looking to Apple One and News Plus articles. Uh, yes, the UI could be improved, but so could photos. Just wondering. You know, I don't ever touch Apple News unless I end up there by accident because somebody posted a link there. I, I don't know how to how to describe it, but I know that there are affordances in Apple News that are different from the standard way iOS works. Like I think swiping back actually gets you to a different article, if I recall correctly. So if you do like a left to right swipe, I would expect you to go back to the prior screen, but it's like, oh no, no, here's the here's another article for you. What? Like I don't want that. No, no. Every other app on my phone, when I swipe from left to right, it goes backwards. And you're just sending me to a different article, which I guess is kind of backwards, but that's not what I want at all. Um, additionally, like sharing, I, I, to me, if I'm going to share a link with somebody, I want to share the canonical version of that link, which 99% of the time is the web. I don't want to share freaking Apple News article. Like if, if you're going to share something, share the web version, please. And thank you. I don't know. I just, I don't, I just don't care for it. I don't like it. Half the time I end up there, it's for a paywalled article and I don't even know it until I land there, which I guess isn't any different than the web, but I just, I don't care for it. John, why don't you tell us what is wrong with Apple News? Yeah. The second bit is what you got. Uh, the, The content in Apple News is content from web pages 
and it should be viewed on the web. The reason everyone has animosity towards Apple News is when we see an Apple News link, we're like, oh, I don't want to tap that and launch into a dedicated app for this special kind of URL that is worse than a web browser, that is more annoying to use than a web browser and makes the article look worse. And you know that article in most cases came from the web to begin with. And it's like a worse version of the article on the web. Now, granted, the web is annoying too. That's why we run ad blockers and everything on our devices, right? But in general, the open web with URLs that are all interlinked to each other as viewed by a web browser is the proper form for web data, not a special dedicated reading application. Even things like RSS readers that read a newsfeed from a site show a web view for the full article or launch a web browser depending on your preference. That's the right way to do this. If, if people were sharing links on Twitter and it was like a net newswire, you know, NNW colon slash slash, we'd be annoyed by that too because that's not the right way to do it. If it's a link, if it's a URL and it's a web page, take me to the web page. Don't take me to an Apple News app that embeds a web view that shows a weird version of that web page. Apple News bad. Now, I understand people who are like, okay, but I like having a dedicated app for this one type of web page. Fine, good. Don't share those links with the public. <laughs> I can <get> your own <laughs> little private place where you go to see things, but don't send, especially if it's like Twitter, if you want to send it to someone through messages and you know they're also a diehard Apple News user, fine, go for it. But if you're writing a tweet out to the world or you're putting a link on your web page, do not make an Apple News link. That's no good. Marco? Yeah, I feel very similarly. You know, the the news is is almost always designed to be read in web browsers. And, you know, for all of its faults, as John was saying, like for, for all the faults of the web, the web browser is an incredible application. And we've all developed habits and expectations on how web browsers work. And you, you mentioned earlier, Casey, like you, you don't like how you swipe back. And instead of like going logically back in the hierarchy or the history, it goes to some other article. Like, and that's just that feels wrong because you're looking at the content and you're it feels like a web browser, but worse. And if you're going to read web content, read it in a web browser. Like that's that's what it's for. And if you if you do anything else, if you try to replicate a web browser-like experience in an app that is not a web browser, you're going to get all the details wrong. And you're going to have capabilities that are wrong. Like, one of the things I love about web browsers is, like, you can just pop open some new, new tabs, and or you can hit Command-F and find stuff on the page real fast. And, like, there's all sorts of things that are built in that you don't even think about because it's just they just have been in web browsers forever, and we use them every day. But you don't necessarily think, like, oh, I need this feature until you're in something like Apple News and you, and you want that feature and it's not there or you expect it to behave a certain way and then it behaves some other some different way and it just feels wrong and it has it has limitations and weird behaviors that just make it feel either limiting or wrong or both if you're reading web content the web browser is the best app to do that in most of the time and anything that forces people out of that with some like weird automatic behavior like universal links do uh, on Apple stuff, it just feels wrong and it, and it's frustrating and it's annoying and, and it, you know, it can, it can really disrupt your flow or anger you or both. So, you know, I don't like things that should be in a certain format that are forcing you into their format for business reasons. You know, like <laughs> there's a reason why if you look back at the sponsors of our show and you look at the sponsors of other podcasts, one of the little rules that we try to enforce uh, whenever reasonably possible is we don't like taking sponsors from services that are subscriptions 
of some kind of product where you pay per month and you get a box full of dog toys or whatever. Like, and it's like, well, I don't really need a subscription to dog toys. And that feels like if you want to sell me dog toys, why don't I just order dog toys when I need dog toys? I don't actually need a subscription to that, right? I I don't like when certain things are like forced into a subscription for business reasons where it's not it doesn't really make sense. And that's kind of how I see apps like Apple News. Like this is forced into this app for Apple's business reasons. Not because it's better, not because news wants to be in this weird special app that takes over this certain type of link and and that, you know, kind of makes it hard to behave normally as a web browser would. Like, that's not, they're not doing that because it's better for you, the customer. They're, in some ways it might be, but in most ways it's either just more limited or more annoying. They're doing that because it's better for them. It serves their strategic interests or their business interests. Like, and that's that's why that is the way it is. I don't like that kind of thing. I, like, if something is is better or native to a certain way of doing things or a certain platform or a certain type of app for viewing or, or consuming it, I want it in that kind of app. I don't I don't want to have it in some weirdo special thing. Like, that's why I don't listen to podcasts on YouTube. Like, I, I use a podcast app because that's what podcasts want to be in, and it's way better, and that's it works the way you expect, and that's it. Um, and and so and you know that's why every every like major podcast or every major audio platform is now adding podcasts for reasons and they're trying to cram it in like oh you use our app to listen to this particular show that we just bought and oh if you have this particular type of fridge you can listen to our podcast (laughs) this podcast production company (laughs) we just bought that can only play on our fridges it's like no i don't nobody wants that and if you if you have the option of not doing that I generally want, will want to take that option. <laughs> so I, I kind of, I, I like for things to be in the, in the place, in the app, in whatever it is, where they make the most sense, where they are native and where they, where they can be full featured and follow expectations. And Apple news breaks a lot of that. And that's why I don't like Apple news. Kevin Duran writes, since M1 based computers have arrived, all tech announcements related to traditional non system on a chip computers already sound old and unexciting. It seems that on an infinite time scale, almost all computers will switch to using ARM-based systems on a chip. This has me wondering, are discrete component motherboards the internal combustion engines of computing? How dare you, sir? On an infinite time scale, you know, we get the heat death of the universe. You don't get a lot of ARM-based SOCs, unfortunately. Uh, This this is an interesting question because it... it, uh, I mean, what Kevin is pointing out is a just a general trend in the this part of the technology sector, which is as we are able to make smaller and smaller transistors, as you know, the process shrinks or whatever, you need to spend those transistors on something. And it turns out that if you can suddenly fit something that used to be an external chip into the, you know, the CPU or whatever, for example, putting the memory controller into the CPU, putting a GPU into the CPU, like this process of taking chips that used to be elsewhere on the motherboard and putting them into uh, not an even bigger chip, but a chip that is more or less the same size, but now you can fit more stuff in it, has been going on for decades and will continue to go on. It doesn't mean, as this process has happened, it doesn't mean that suddenly you have zero, you know, it's just a motherboard with one chip on it because you get other chips that are elsewhere, like the, you know, the cell modem or whatever. Oh, you can integrate that. Like, so this... This process will continue, but and it may eventually get to the point where essentially you have one chip in certain devices and then just analog stuff outside of it, if we're not already there in some scenarios. 
but it's not a new trend. Um, and to give an example of that, we should put this link in the show notes, an acronym from my childhood and that I also found in my schooling at various points is VLSI. Do you know without looking it up what VLSI is? You know oh, I mean? very yeah. large scale integration. That's right. Um, and this is another, this is kind of like the uh, high bandwidth memory. Uh, if you make up a name like this, like very large scale integration, that sounds impressive. At least they didn't say ultra or whatever, but they did say very, very large scale integration. <laughs> a term coined in the 70s, uh, with the idea was that you take a bunch of what used to be discrete components, transistors. I don't know if you've ever seen a little black little uh, pencil eraser thing with three metal mm-hmm. leads coming out of it. Mm-hmm. You take a bunch of what used to be a bunch of transistors on a board, and you can combine all those transistors into one thing that we call an integrated circuit. So all those little transistors used to be there, and now they're in one thing. That's very large-scale integration. <laughs> they, they burned that term, and now we can't use it for like, <laughs> putting, put it, for just for the idea of an integrated circuit, of not having separate transistors, right? So See also VHF and UHF. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, this consolidation trend will continue as long as uh, we are able to make smaller and smaller transistors. Eventually, we won't be able to make smaller and smaller transistors, and this trend will stop, and who knows, maybe we'll use DNA-based computing or something. I don't know. There's other, other avenues we can go on, but transistors will not get smaller forever because physics... Um, but for the foreseeable future, uh, we will continue to spend our transistor budget uh, on putting more stuff into the one main chip, which we now call a system on a chip. But honestly, like when, when Intel integrated the memory controller, oh, it's not a system on a chip, but we're certainly putting a lot more stuff in this chip. And like oh, we cross the threshold and you say, oh, now it's a system on a chip. And, you know, whatever the, the arbitrary definition you want to say, well, when you put this in, then it becomes a system on a chip. But yeah, we're going to see more stuff going in. Or the other direction you can go is, well, you can just keep making the GPUs bigger because you can basically make GPUs bigger forever and spend all your transistor and power budget on it. But um, it is advantageous to have more and more things integrated. This is another question, by the way, of like, We've been talking for a couple of years now about Apple making its own cell modems for its phones, which is a difficult thing to do. And they started on it many years ago and they bought Intel's business for doing that. Right. And we fully expect, if not in the next iPhone and certainly the one after that, that Apple won't be using chips from Qualcomm for its cell modem. It will be using its own. Could that be integrated into the uh, the system on a chip? Maybe, but there are analog components to cell modems that may not be easy to fold in, so maybe still be a good idea to have it outside. But those are the type of things that you can imagine being sucked into that. And as for discrete components being internal combustion engines, no, because they will always be discrete components because it it, it doesn't make sense to put literally every single thing into the system on a chip. Uh, we just talked about DRAM last time. Because DRAM is manufactured in a slightly different way, it doesn't make sense to try to do sort of, you know, the, the the manufacturing system to use for the logic and then a separate manufacturing system to use for the DRAM to try to put that on the same die. It's not always going to make sense to do that. So there will, there will almost always be components, even if it's just like the stuff that's like all the capacitors and the analog components for the power supplies that are outside the system on a chip, that's still going to be out there. Even if it looks like it's dwindling, as we pull more things into the system on a chip, we come up with new ideas for put it, to put in that board space, so... Thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Linode, and Bombus. And thanks to our members who support us directly. You, too, can join. Uh, not, you know, you, too, the number two. You also can join <laughs> at atv.fm slash join. And we'll talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Accidental.
accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L. ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. If you're listening to this now and you're just now, but you weren't paying attention earlier, but now you're composing that email to tell me what a bread box is, just stop. <laughs> I knew it when it was coming out of my mouth. I'm like, I can hear, I can hear the tweets going now. You don't know what a bread box is. You've never seen a bread box. Here's a photo of the bread box on my countertop right now. Why don't you have a bread box? You're missing the point of the joke. <laughs> so true. It's silly. It's silly that the thing we use for 20 questions and charades or whatever to, to, uh, assess the size of things as a bread box which despite you knowing what it is and despite my grandmother having one is not the first object that springs to mind about it for for size comparisons but for whatever reason what what bread box got it i think 20 questions right is that the the context in which you know bigger than a bread box i believe so yeah 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 because like is it bigger than a bread box like that's that's mm-hmm. the yeah what do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about uh, Slack? There was a request in the chat room to talk about Tesla, which I really, really don't want to do because I can't handle the feedback. No. What did, what did Tesla do? Did they Besides the t- weird tequila thing. Uh, full self-driving is real, man. It's real. <laughs> is it? Full self-driving. I, I think it's been real like 10 times. Is the, is the, they put a big mission to accomplish banner behind it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's real. It's real. And it's in beta. Yeah. Oh, great. That's something I want to beta test. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you're already you're already beta testing it, Marco. Bad news. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I haven't kept up with this. A couple of people have mentioned this, and uh, it's, frankly, the only people I've heard about it from are Tesla owners. So this hasn't even made my sphere outside of Tesla people being like, "Ooh, I've got full self driving now," or whatever. So I'm not even sure what's different, to be honest. No, I haven't. This is the first I've heard of this story, but I I haven't been paying attention. I, I, the last thing I saw about full self-driving is a bunch of angry Tesla owners saying that it's the worst $5,000 or whatever they ever spent, and they're super angry about it. And that made me happy because they're learning that the thing they have in their car now will not drive the car for you. I love that you're saying that. Meanwhile, T. Kizzy in the chat says, it's pretty impressive. It, it's a limited beta. So is it good? Is it bad? Who knows? Drive your own car, people. Until the car drives itself. That's and, and don't trust Elon when he tells you that it does because he's been saying that for uh, many years now. Well, there's just been so many asterisks on it, and there still are. Like, the, like every time they make progress, they do something that's very technically laudable. Like it's very impressive, but it still isn't full self driving, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what the feature is called. <laughs> and like, yep. and every time they they get you know every time they they get like one step closer to that. They call it full self-driving. It's like, well, okay, can it actually drive with no interaction from here to there, no matter what I mean by here and there, no matter what it accounts, you know, what it encounters in the meantime? No, it can't. Okay, well, then that's not full self-driving. It might be something else. It might be great. But that's what full self-driving means. 
It's not great because the closer it gets to that without reaching it, it's the uncanny valley, the more dangerous it becomes because the more it lulls the user into thinking that it really is, they really can take a nap, but they can't do not nap. Right? <laughs> well, that's the thing, like all kidding aside, like what, what level are we talking about? Because to me, if this isn't at least level four, which is defined as you can take a nap, then it's not self-driving. I thought that, I thought that was level five. I thought level five was you can take a nap. No, this isn't level five. That's what I thought too. But then I was corrected that this is not level five. So this is very much not full self-driving. This is full-ish self-driving. Right, but you were, really saying four, you were saying four is you can take a nap, right? But mm-hmm. that's not four, is it? I don't remember. We, yes. we went over this many- I'm looking at it right now. Level four is quote-unquote mind off. As level three, but no driver tension is required for safety, e.g. the driver may safely go to sleep or leave the driver's seat. All right, so, so what's the difference between four and five? Steering wheel, steering wheel optional on level five i mean but but that's that see that doesn't make sense to me i guess we should have looked into these sa levels earlier because like <laughs> if you don't need to pay attention then why does that need to have a steering wheel i mean i suppose you could say well if you remove if you can manually drive it it's only level four oh here it, we go here we go it's reading i should just keep reading that's that's the that's the trick you guys however self-driving is supported only in limited spatial areas like being geofenced or under special <laughs> circumstances so that's like it only works on the highway uh, so here's the thing if, if it says that no attention is required that's not true because if you fall asleep and it ends up running uh, it gets off at a highway exit and then comes to a dead stop in the highway exit and you're asleep in the car because it's <laughs> like well i'm i'm i've i've exited the area where i know how to drive so it's time for you to drive driver and you're snoring that's not good. And it's dangerous for the car. I mean, even if, it, if all the Teslas pull over after the exit and say, well, all our drivers are asleep, uh, but we can't drive any farther. Anyway, I, d- I don't like level four. Le- level five are bust. And so far, it's all been bust. Yep. And uh, I don't know. It, it, like uh, somebody in the chat is saying, oh, well, it mean, it, level four means you have a few minutes before you have to take over. So it could like wake you up or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so this, is, this, is like the, this is like the worst version of like, don't worry, uh, you'll be needed soon, but not now. But you don't have to pay attention, but you do have to be wakeable. But like, oh, it's like how many? It's like <laughs> trying to get kids up for school. It's like, look, either you're gonna either either you're gonna drive me there by yourself, or I have to be involved in the process. Yeah, it's yeah. it it seems so preposterous to me. And I, oh my god, please don't email me. Please don't email any of us. I don't. I don't. Care. A reminder <laughs> to everyone listening that if you think that the car can drive for you. But at any moment, you will be called upon to uh, take over. Uh, you can't do that. No one can do it. No human can do that. It is against human nature. It is against the functioning of your brain. It is an incredibly dangerous situation. Drive your car until it can drive for you. There is no way you can maintain that level of vigilance over a long car trip. Your attention will wander. You will not be ready to take over in time, and you will die. Don't do it. Hands on, hands on the wheel. <laughs> Agreed, a thousand percent. And please, for the love of God, please don't email us. Please, please. I don't care. I, I'm telling you, I'm, I don't care. And I'm, I know this sounds rude. I realize that this sounds rude. I am genuinely so thankful when we get feedback because it means that you're listening. It means that you care enough to correct us or to give us new information, except the Tesla people who are all the worst. So I don't care. Don't email me. Thank you. I love you. Are you including Marco in that? He's one of those Tesla people. Not that he drives anywhere anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, but I have to acknowledge, like, I think of all the customer, I don't know, communities or groups that I'm in by, by like, the things I buy or like, I think being a Tesla customer is the worst one of those things. Like, because, the, like, the rest of the community is so bad. How about fish? And, and I know lots of people who own Teslas 
who are not part of the like fan base. They're like me. They own it and they like their car, but they don't participate in the community or fan base aspects of it. I mean, frankly, that's pretty much how I am with fish too. It's like, like I, I'm not, I don't go to the shows. I'm not super into like any of the communities around it. I don't know anything about them. Smoke the pot. I do. Yeah. (laughs) I don't do any of the drugs. I don't like, I just listen to the music and that's it. And I love the music and that's where, that's where my interaction ends. And with Tesla, like, I love driving the car. It's a great car. That's where my interaction ends. Like, I, I don't, I do not want to talk about Tesla on Twitter with people. I don't want to follow what Elon Musk is doing in his, in his side projects. Like, I don't, I don't want to do any of the experimental features. I've, I've never used Summon even because, like, oh, here's another thing that, here's another way I could destroy my car and it achieves a benefit I don't need. So, no thanks. I don't, I, I won't try that. Thanks. Like, I just, I don't care. I, I just don't care. It's a great car. I love driving it. That's, that's the extent of the involvement that I want in, with this brand. <laughs> and that's, it's like the, the, the relationship I have, like, with the brand of scissors that I buy. Well, you know what? I, <laughs> when I buy, when I need scissors, I, you know what I do? I buy some scissors. And I don't know a damn thing about the brand. I just know I like these scissors and I buy them. And that's it. Like, that's how I am about my car. I like this car, <laughs> it's a great car don't care at all about the company don't want to argue about it don't want to talk about all their weird you know side projects they're doing and their beta features that almost kind of sort of fully work like nope don't don't care about that i just like the car it's a great car i like driving it 